live. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Worldwide Wednesday podcast. I'm your host, Sovereign. And I'm Shiny. And, uh, still have a lot to talk about today. Yeah, uh, we thought this would be a pretty chill week, but, uh, things just kind of happen. Yep. So let's go ahead and hop in on it. So I kind of want to start with, uh, Pokemon Presents. Yeah. So pretty much we did get a lot of information today. Uh, this morning about what we would expect from the sequels of uh, Scarlet and Violet. So the sequels? Uh, or se- well, come on. Yeah. <laughs> it's all a sequel to Red and Blue. Let's be fair here. I'm correct. Fair in enough. Act in, a te- in a technical sense, yeah, it is definitely a sequel to Red and Blue. <laughs> but, um, you're, yeah. So, first thing that I want to point out, of course, is the reveal of this uh, generation's gimmick, which, uh, Death to Dynamax forever, please. <laughs> well, yeah, at this point, I am convinced that uh, we're just going to get regional gimmicks for now on. I figured that um, I figured that Dynamax would be on the way out, considering the lore of Dynamax was very Galar-centric, just as how the lore of Z-Moves was very Alola-centric. But thankfully, it looks like they're gone, because, oh boy, did people hate that mechanic. Yeah, I think Dynamax got hated on a little bit too much because they were pretty balanced. No. For the formats, they were balanced around. Not yeah. 6v6 Smogon singles, but 3v3 Battle Spot singles and 2v2 VGC slash Battle Spot doubles. It was balanced. It still was not fun. I had some fun. There is nothing more fun than just completely dicking over a Dynamaxed Mon that you knew could sweep your team because you just had proper, like, planning. Like, oh god, so in series 12, there's like, you know the soul, the weakness power you see Soul Galeo set? Yeah. So I would frequently lead with Tornadus and um, Gastrodon and I would use Yawn and then I would max guard on the Tornado, on the Thunderous, so then he can't use max lightning and he still falls asleep. And then you get to kill him! <laughs> Starts like that, or using um uh, magic bounce or uh, magic bounce parting shot on Hatterene to completely just dick over um Dynamax Mons. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, it was just not fun for me. Honestly, like it's everything like that people can t- tolerate about Z moves, but just amplified to an unbearable level. Thankfully, they're gone now. Yeah, now we have a. Terrestrial, right? Yeah. Which pretty much uh, gives Pokemon the ability to identify as a t- whatever type they want. Yeah. I So, I actually don't think every Pokemon can identify as any type. But they're, uh, they're open to pretty much much more possibilities than before. Yeah. So, what it looks like is that it's not going to be a held item-based mechanic. Yeah, it's going to be like Dynamax, where every Pokemon can do it by virtue of setting foot in the Paldea region. Yeah. So, because pretty much we got clues in as to, like, Pokemon being able to terrestrialize into other types. Like, Eevee we see with water and grass. Gardevoir we see with water. Uh, which, of course, are not... Especially for Gardevoir, that's not a typing that's really relevant to them, so... Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's weird that we only see the indications of, like, five typings throughout the entirety of the trailer because we see the the uh, terrestrialized forms for water 
uh, grass, fire, normal, flying. Those are pretty much the only ones we see so far. Yeah. So, I mean, I, even, I, even with Hydreigon on screen, they opted to give it, I think it was either grass or water, terrestrialization. Yeah. So, I think how it's going to work is that certain Pokemon will have a certain amount of types connected to it. Like Drifflim, for example. Drifflim had the fire terrestrialized type, which makes sense. It's a hot air balloon. Yeah. It seems like it's going to be something that can... I wish it could be manipulated, but based on what the trailer would make you assume, it seems like it's something that's determined when you catch it. Yeah. I think of it like uh, G-Max factors. Yeah. So I would imagine that probably... <clears throat> Probably not in the base game, but in some DLC, like how we see in Sword and Shield, there is a, probably a way to manipulate it. Yeah, there probably will be. Um, <clears throat> I am actually really excited for it, because I think it will do a lot when it comes to... Um, I mean, it seems like a balanced mechanic. More balanced than Dynamax could ever wish to be. Yeah. Um, the thing that I'm interested in is, so, does it change your type? Or is it giving you new stab? Yeah, there's because, a big difference because, because the the uh, the the answer of least consequence is that they just give you a new stab. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, it could be oh, they give Pokemon a third typing. No, that's not what I meant though. I mean, you just lose your types. For example, we saw water a Terra type, a water Terra type Gardevoir. Is that Gardevoir pure water? Oh, okay. Because what I'm thinking, based <clears throat> off of how the Pokemon website um, describes it, I think it's that your Terra type will override your normal type, and you will still get stabbed for your regular type. But your Terra type will be the type yeah. you take damage for. Yeah, we'll have to see, because adding different typings might be confusing, but... Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Um, I want to... Where is it? I want to read what it said because it's um, pretty interesting if it is the um, the ability to change your... Uh, the ability to change your type because that's actually pretty fucking scary, all things considered. Because imagine you switch in a Toxapex. So think of it like this. Toxapex comes in. You have a Lando. Toxapex's Terra-type is flying. And you're the, you're the Landorus that runs U-Turn, Earthquake, Stealth, Rock, Toxic. Pretty common set. Your Tyranitar died, and it's now Toxapex v. Landorus. Toxapex's Terra-type is flying. You're fucked! <laughs> because what you expected to be a Water-Ground-type is now a Flying-type that still gets Water-Stab. You're fucked. You can't win. Yeah. With, when you bring up legendaries, actually, it almost makes me certain that you can have a way to manipulate it post-catching the Pokemon, the form that you get to terrestrialize to. Because, cool. I mean, with legendaries, imagine trying to manipulate the Terra types on those. If they make it to where you can only manipulate it when you catch it, that's going to be really infuriating for legendary captures. Oh, God. So. Do you know what I'm scared of, though? What? So, what Pokemon? So, I'm just thinking of the abilities that cancel out pre-existing types mm -hmm. being abused. Levitate, Water Absorb, 
flash fire, motor drive, abilities like that. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid of those. Because if given the right combinations, some Pokemon become nigh-invincible. Shedinja. No. Oh. Oh, fuck. <laughs> oh, fuck. Yeah, that's almost... Oh, God! Yeah. Oh, God, especially if as a terror type is normal. Uh, oh, God. If Chedinja gets a normal terror type, and terror types work where it overrides your original type, that's busted! <laughs> Chedinja goes to Ubers! No, fuck that! Anything goes! Chedinja gets banned from Ubers! With its terror type. We'll have to see, because, again, this... So... The only complaint I have, because, like, we're three months away from the game at this point, we still barely know anything. I mean, mind you, we probably won't get, like, the full Pokedex unless it's leaked, which I think it already has. Uh, the full Pokedex hasn't been leaked, but a decent amount of Pokemon concepts have been leaked. Yeah. As in, there's a leak that an ostrich Pokemon is going to be in the I think game. the returning Pokemon have been leaked, though, right? No, I don't believe all returning have been leaked. I could have sworn I saw a leak of them of that nature but anyway let's go to the information that helps confirm that the leaks are true uh paladin whooper yes a poison ground type our third one and the newest one since gen one we haven't had a poison ground type since needle king and needle queen yeah yeah so paladin whooper i'm excited for because whooper is one of my favorite pokemon yeah, does it is does it, in the leaks? Didn't it say that it's going to get a split off evolution? Yes. Yeah. So it's which gonna, I'm very interested. So we're not even going to get Paldean's uh, uh, Quagsire. We're just going to get a brand new Pokemon. Yeah, which is interesting <laughs> considering that one of the abilities for Paldean Wooper is Water Absorb. So it's a Ground type with a Water immunity. Yeah. Which is actually really cool. Because I mean, it's a swampy Pokemon. So. Yeah. So. The description on the website, some people are wondering, because it said that if you see poison Pokemon, it could mean a Paldean Whooper is in the area. Some people are theorizing, what if you encounter pre-poisoned wild Pokemon? Um, that would be cool, but I don't see it happening. I don't see it happening, but if it does happen, I would really welcome it. Yeah. Because it would just be a good environmental change, and hey, makes your life a little bit easier trying to catch a Pokemon. Yeah, true. But... Yeah. I, I would, yeah. Well, maybe. Yeah. Then we have um, Fido. Yeah, people are gonna be going over, going over after that one like crazy. After the whole, man, really, people just abandoned Lechonk immediately after they saw Fido, huh? Yeah, I mean, come on, it's an even better pun. It's a pure fairy type with the ability own tempo. Yeah, I'm surprised that it was fairy, but it is a it is. A, it's a dessert-looking Pokemon, so, I mean, yeah. you gotta follow the trend of alchemy, I guess. <laughs> someone someone was saying it better evolve into fucking purebred. <laughs> Which... I swear. I Considering how the localization team has been having a lot of fun with these names already, I think we have, like, a 50-50 shot of Fido's evolution being purebred. Oh god. Uh, oh god, I swear if they make if, if they make the uh, mid evolution of pun on sourdough, I'm quitting. 
Oh my god. It looks like a two-stage mod. It reminds me a lot of Yamper. Yeah. So I think it'll be a two-stage mod. We could we could see a three-stager, though. We could. I mean, Palmy apparently is a three-stager, which that looked like a two-stager at most to me. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's most likely this generation's rodent, so... Yeah. Then um, we also got a Satylan, which is... Um, Satitan. Satitan, yeah, Satitan. Which is a pure ice Pokemon with the abilities Thick Fat and Slush Rush. That's still gonna suck. <laughs> yeah, it's a pure ice type. Maybe it has a good Terra type. We'll see. we'll see. They say that it's fast. Uh, nah. That thing looks like the second coming of Avalug. And if you're a fan of the podcast, you know our opinions on Avalug. We don't like Avalug. Avalug is very dumb. Not in design, but in its competitive usage. It is very dumb. And design. You don't like the ice table design? I don't. I like ice table design. I'm sorry, but I expect a special defense higher than 30 for that thing. I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. Its stats are absolute garbage. But at least the design was cool. But then its Hisuian variant is equally as garbage. It's even worse. You know. <laughs> but yeah, this is a pure ice type. Um, it gets Slush Rush, so maybe it'll have decent speed. And um, there's one other thing about it. Um, they specified its horns. So if it doesn't get Mega Horn, I'm going to be mad. Yeah. Most likely, it's probably just not going to evolve or have any pre-evolutions. Yeah, it looks like a one-stager. Yeah. It looks like, um... Well, what's <clears throat> that one single stage? It look There's like... there's. It looks like a Dunsparce. It, not in that it visually no, I, looks I, like Dunsparce. I, I get what you're saying. But it looks like... Which is actually funny, because I'm actually pretty sure Dunsparce is getting an evolution this gen. Oh, God. Bad example. Looks like... I was gonna say Stantler, but that would actually be incorrect as well. <laughs> it looks like Stonejourner, okay? <laughs> you know what I mean when I say this. Yeah. Yeah, I get, it it I get. looks like a one stager. I just re I was like going through it. I'm like, wait, these are no longer one stagers anymore. <laughs> yeah. So so and really, other than that, we like we get to see more characters and more information on the ones that we've seen in previous trailers. But um, what do you think about the headmaster being the villain? I haven't thought too much about it. So I remember I was watching, I forgot whose reaction I was looking at, but someone saw the headmaster and immediately screamed, VILLAIN! <laughs> and I was like, I could see it. Yeah. We get three, li three, three rivals once again, which is welcome. We have Nimona, we have Arvin. I don't remember. It starts with an A and we have Penny. Yeah. So that should be interesting. Um... We are, if you pre-order, you're going to get a type, a flying type Pikachu with fly, which I actually really like for one reason. We finally get to use a battleable version of the flying Pikachu with the balloons. <laughs> it has been something that has been teased since Gen 1, but has never actually been physically playable in a main series game. Yeah. They teased us with it in Let's Go, but we're finally getting Balloon Pikachu, and I am unreasonably excited for it. <laughs> yeah. So I will be pre-ordering. Yeah. Honestly, this might be the one game that I actually buy both versions of, because the visuals do look really nice now. Yeah, they do look really nice. Except for that Terra Raid battle, 
that shit dropped to 20 FPS with all those hyper beams flying. Yeah. Which, what do you think about the new revamp to raid battles? You can now battle at your own pace. Because what it implies is that you don't have to wait your turn. What it looks like is that moves are going to have cooldown. I think it's going to be similar to Pokemon Go's raid battles. That's pretty much the impression that I got. Which, yeah. to be honest, I'm fine with. Which I... I mean, I will... Like, I will go on and on about how much I hate Dynamax as a mechanic, but raid battles were still really good. Raid battles were really good, and I love doing raid battles specifically because they were some of the best ways to farm some of the best items, and I really hope that carries over with the Tetra... Terrastal? Terrastal. Terrastal raids. Yeah. So, uh, I'm really excited. This game actually is looking better and better. And kind of building off of something we talked about last week, I found myself just super excited for this game, despite some minimal information we got, which really just shows that, like, compared to things like Marvel, my excitement for Pokemon is always just, like, whenever something's new, I'm excited. Yeah. Versus Marvel, it takes a lot to excite me from them. Yeah. Well, I mean, whew, most of the excitement for me comes from what we find out in the post-game, because let's face it here, we're people that focus on competitive. Yeah. We could care less about the story. Yeah. But, but though, I will say one thing that I have been thinking of recently, could, yeah. and might actually be the first time I've thought about it at all, is like, what is the story behind the legendaries? Because going back, we have like so many different like, like, like wondrous beings that uh, inhabit the land. Like I can even go to last gen, like Zashin and Zamazenta were the heroes of an old age. Meanwhile, this gen we've got bikes. Actually, <laughs> Koridon is not a bike. If you see its animations and its description. It uses its legs because the sack that looks like a wheel is not a wheel. I actually do love that detail. because I do love that. Because it's obvious that uh, Koridon is supposed to be like the past, like a representation of the past, so he doesn't use the wheels at all. Which... I mean, its name is Korai. Yeah. Japanese for past. So I absolutely love that little detail. Yeah, I really do like it. Some people say it looks goofy. I think it's amazing. I love it. I mean, I was already going to choose Scarlet first anyway. So. Same. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited for it. Maridon still looks really cool, though. Especially because yeah. Maridon is an actual bike. And I like how the legendaries... I like how they're just like, you know what? People liked when we gave them Cosmog in the beginning and built up a relationship with it. I like that they're bringing that back, because I think that was one of the better aspects of Sun and Moon's story, was that the legendary you caught was something that you actually bonded with. Yeah. And let's be honest, 99% of the population named their Solgaleos and Lunalas Nebi. <laughs> let's be honest here. Yeah. So, I'm just interested to see find out more about it, because, I mean, we don't get a lot, so we don't... Like, even, like, with the, um, with the reveals of, uh, Sashi and Zamazenta, Sol, uh, Solgaleo, Lunala, all of those legendaries, we get, like, glimpses into, like, oh, they're, like, supernatural beings that could be comparable to gods. Meanwhile, now we have Bike. Yeah. I'm really <laughs> interested in seeing their lore. Um, I'm actually really interested in the fact that there are three endings to this game. 
Well, so the leaks, so that the, the trailer says three stories. The leak says that each story has a different ending. And it's only through completing all three endings do you get the true ending. Yeah, which... We Fire Emblem, boys! Which, it's good that we actually get, like, the gym challenge back. Because, yeah. of course, after Legends Arceus, which... Is a completely different structured game. Returning back to bases with Scarlet and Violet would be nice. But I also <laughs> like that the gyms are not the primary story. It's just one of three. Yeah, yeah. So it looks like they are still taking it in a new direction while still keeping people happy. I think this is actually the best way because a lot of people praised and hated Sun and Moon for getting rid of gyms. And a lot of people did the same with Legends Arceus. I think this is the best of both worlds. You have the gym side for all your gym fans, but you have a whole host of... You have two other side stories that are probably going to be based probably, if I'm going to be perfectly honest, one of them is going to be Pokedex Collection. Oh, without a doubt. And the other one is probably going to deal with, like, the school itself and, like, like you know, the lore of the, the region. Yeah. Like, one is going to be Pokedex, one's going to be lore, one's going to be battles. Yeah. And I think that's going to be for the best. Yeah. Um, so, also, can we talk about the fact that the schools are literally named Orange and Grape? Yep. I love that. There was a 4chan leak that came out, and everyone called it fake. Because they were like, there's no way they're fucking naming it Orange and Grape. And then the trailer came out, and they were like, why is it always that random 4chan leak that we all put down that's usually the most accurate? Yeah, because pretty much they named the academies after the Spanish uh, names for... Uh, orange and fruit and i'm for it yeah i saw naranja and uva i was like those are fucking fruits <laughs> what the fuck but yeah. i love it all the same because pokemon is goofy as fuck and i love it for any it. any final thoughts um co-op co-op is looking real strong oh yeah I'm really excited. I like the idea of co-op back in Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee. And I'm really glad that they finally perfected it to the point where they now allow for four. Which I'm really glad because when I was thinking of Let's Go and Eevee, I was thinking that four people is like the perfect amount for a co-op in a Pokemon game. And I'm glad that we're finally showing more of it and that it's not just like... I mean, imagine Legends Arceus being four-player. This is pretty much probably what we're going to get. Yeah, which I'm really excited for, especially because you can yeah. even see which Legendary your friends are riding. But um, my overall final thoughts, I was impressed with the trailer, but I really wanted more. Yeah. Like, I think we got plenty of information. Like, obviously we need to get the Terrastall phenomena uh, revealed to the public. We, yeah. We needed a lot more Pokemon to be. I ready. feel like we do. But also, remember Sword and Shield revealed like next to no Pokemon? That is true, yeah. And it, to be honest, we were better for it. I mean, I still was hyped about Legends Arceus. I mean, they did keep the the new Pokemon it, uh, like coming it and we were we probably got like half of the Pokemon revealed. Mind no, you, we only had a third of the new Pokemon in Legends Arceus revealed. But still a solid chunk. Yeah, still a solid chunk. I feel it's going to be the same here. We definitely needed to see regional variants. But yeah. the real question is, is the past and future versions of Pokemon, like the leaks have been saying. Yeah, that the is The ancient true. and futures, those are have to be the next ones. Which probably we'll see those a month away from release. Yeah, because, typically. I mean, yeah, we're three months away from the game and we still don't know that much either way a good trailer but i need to see more yeah um keeping up with pokemon news though um 
Pokemon World is coming back, which is good. It's been three years. COVID really fucked VGC, which in a way really shaped the VGC meta very differently than how VGC metas normally take shape because VGC metas develop specifically around in-person events in very unique ways. The best example I can think of is that the meta that you see at Worlds is usually very different from the meta that you see at, say, Nationals. The best example of this is VGC 2015 with the Chalk meta, where Chalk only became the dominant meta of VGC 2015 at Worlds. Previously, 2015 was actually a pretty diverse meta, but then the, Jap the Japanese came during the time period of Japanese Nationals to Worlds, which was pretty short, that's when Chalk developed. So VGC now going back to Worlds is going to be very interesting for its meta development. Okay. And then and also Pokemon Unite and Pokemon Go are now joining Worlds alongside TCG and Pokemon. Yeah, which surprising to see Pokemon still alive, honestly. Pokemon is keeping that... Pokemon, Pokemon has been pretty good about keeping certain competitive games active. So, I'm not surprised. Yeah. But, moving on, we have other Pokemon news that were, uh... That, that's a big one. So, you're talking about the VGC? Yes. So, this is going to be a post-Worlds meta, but it's insane. So, we recently got the announcement of VGC 2022 Series 13, which is when Game Freak has finally decided to say... Fuck it! Use whatever the fuck you want! We don't care anymore! Because they have completely unrestricted all legendaries, and for the first time in VGC history, have legitimately legalized all mythicals to be available for VGC. This is huge. It's a historically unprecedented rule change. Yeah, yeah. So, uh... Magirna and Marshadow are going to spike in usage. Yeah, so I've actually been playing in a couple um, tournaments on Showdown, and holy fuck, Magirna, if set up right, is pretty fucking devastating because Soul Heart, which is Magirna's ability, activates regardless of who dies or how they die. Unlike abilities like Beast Boost and Moxie, which only activate once you yourself have knocked out an opponent, Soul Heart doesn't matter. Your opponent can die from you attacking it, die from status. Your partner can die. Doesn't matter. Magirna's getting a special attack boost, which yeah. allows it to snowball, especially in a Dynamax meta, oh, where, God, yeah. where things are dropping left, right, and center. Yeah, especially with my earlier complaints about Dynamax. Yeah, this is going to be... This is going to be insane. Yeah, and then there's Marshadow, which is pretty much the anti-Dynamax Pokemon. Because of because of Marshadow's signature move, Spectral Thief, which allows it to steal all boosts, but ignore all... It ugh, absorbs all buffs, but d ignores all nerfs, and then uses said buffs in its damage calculation when hitting you. It makes it the premier anti-Dynamax Pokemon. Yeah, pretty much. And it's really good because it's ghost fighting, which is a really good type. It uh, has technician, which is a really good ability, and it's fast with a very high attack stat. Yeah, no, putting technician with shadow sneak on that thing, 
Yeah, on top of the fact that speed control is hell of a drug with dynamic speed turns, max air streams, and fucking tailwinds running all over the place. Yeah, you do realize that that thing is going to one-shot Calyrex Shadow Rider, right? Oh, I know, because I've done it. (laughs) Yeah, no. I will say it's not as broken as people think it is because of the fact that it's frail and VGC is frequent double targeting. So unless you're accruing defense or special defense boosts from max quakes and max steel, steel spikes, um, it is kind of easy to take out Marshadow if you know what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, Kyogre and Groudon still busted as all hell. Uh, the Calyrexes still busted. Xerneas still trash. <laughs> Rest in pieces. Dynamax really fucks Xerneas. Yeah, especially with all the relevant steel types that are out now, like Sogaleo. We're going to probably see... The Cosma Duskmane. We're probably going to see uh, Genesect, Magirna, and Melmetal handle it really well. Yeah, on top of Zacian and Zamazenta in their hero forms. Xerneas is getting fucked. But you know who's not getting fucked? Veltal! That's not getting fucked! Veltal is going to skyrocket in usage because it is a dark flying type, which is an amazing typing for VGC. Um, it also gets Tailwind, Soccer Punch, Max Airstream, Max Darkness, Dark Aura, which gives it pretty good pairings with Incineroar. They'll yeah. all be eaten. Yeah. Huh. But that's pretty much all we had to say on that. So Yeah, it's okay. a very unprecedented change, but one that I welcome. Um, I actually got to the semifinals in one tournament I was in, and then the finals in the other tournament I was in. Okay. Because uh, this meta is insane. Yep. And it was with like a patchwork team that I made. It had a, uh, what was it? It was Magirna. It had Magirna, Marshadow, uh, Zacian, Incineroar, and like two other legends. Incineroar was my only non-legend. Like this shit is insane. All right. Well. Okay. We've got we've got a new one for you guys. Finally, the cinema has blessed us with good. Mo- oh, I actually want to save that for last. You want to save that for last? I want to save it for last because it's going to be the best one. What? All right. Let's... So before we get to what the cinema has blessed us, let us talk about what the cinema will not be blessing us with. Okay. Batgirl, getting canceled. Yeah. Somehow that. Uh, Warner Brothers Discovery looked at it and said, "Nah." Yeah. Um. The reason, the official reasoning for why they took it, or why they're canceling it, is money. They don't think money. it's worth the money. Yeah, which of course we're seeing Warner Brothers Discovery be a lot more strict with um, how they're going to be handling the DCIP, and seeing this get canceled, I feel like there's other motivations behind it, but money is probably the biggest one. Yeah, like there are probably a bunch of other side factors because th- these have been going to te- test screenings. People have been watching uh those and so probably something from there has probably had some influence on it as well but something may have happened because i mean the flash had positive test screenings good lord imagine uh, if the flash was actually a good movie oh god i would hate myself for going to yeah you it. would hate yourself <laughs> it's oh, almost god. it's almost like when i realized oh my god the top gun sequel is actually good why do i like this military propaganda <laughs> yeah yeah, but Batgirl got canceled, and David Zaslav's um, reasoning for it was that it's because for a while, um, 
what's the guy's name? Something Kilar? I don't remember. The former CEO? Well, the former former CEO Kilar, he had his whole thing about DC where all of its movies would be simultaneous releases, which would mean that it would come out in theaters while also streaming on HBO Max. When Disney and Marvel did this, it didn't really work well because they fucked over the actors. Specifically, Scarlett Johansson got fucked over in terms of her contract deal. Yeah. Meanwhile, DC seems to have actually been better because in lieu of the fact that their contracts didn't allow for them to profit off of the streaming, DC compensated them by giving them very generous bonuses, which seems to have placated a lot of the people in agreements, and so far DC hasn't had any lawsuits in regards to the simultaneous streaming. But Zaslav believes that that's not going to cut it. He believes that... DC movies should be spectacles witnessed in the theaters first and streaming second. And for that reason, he felt that Batgirl was a project that was not big enough for cinema, but was also too big for regular streaming to be profitable. Yeah, so which that makes sense. I mean, you probably won't have similar budgets for a Batgirl project as you have for like the Batman yeah, because this movie originally was $75 million, bumped up to $90 million due to COVID. Had a lot of stars on it. Had Leslie Jones, J.K. Simmons, Michael Keaton, Brendan Fraser. They were all on this project. The writer from Miss Marvel was directing it. Um, it looked to be a somewhat promising um, film. I mean, it's basically completed. I imagine the only things left to do were things like composing music and VFX. Yeah. So this is effectively a finished movie just going to get locked away in the vaults of Warner Brother Discovery as lost media. Yeah, probably. But hey, if they're going to be able to... like, Obviously their biggest motivation is money, but if by a sliver of a chance that it's motiva- motivated by good, uh, like churning out good quality, well, yeah. I'll take it. I mean, they did also cancel the Scoob sequel. <laughs> so maybe it's that. Maybe because well also the biggest thing that i'm feeling about this is that so zaslav's big thing about dc is he really wants to become its own content vertical like how star wars and marvel have become content verticals even pixar as well within disney he wants to match that with um with how he's structuring warner brothers discovery and you can actually kind of see it um game of thrones is becoming its own content vertical not content vertical Makes sense with DC. Probably wants to do something similar with things like Mortal Kombat, Harry Potter, all the Cartoon Network stuff. I mean, they do have Warner Brothers Animation Studio on their helm as well. Exactly. So. Which, that's probably the only one they have, like, established mm -hmm. already to begin with. It should be really interesting because, um... With this, it makes sense that projects will be cancelled and returned around. It makes me wonder if projects such as, you know, uh, Blue Beetle will survive. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. Because Blue Beetle is supposed to be a film, hmm. but if Batgirl, who in my opinion is a more well-known, established DC hero, isn't surviving this, I cannot imagine Blue Beetle does. We'll have to wait and see. We really will have to. Static Shock was supposed to be a show, right? I don't movie. remember. If it was supposed to be a show, it could survive. If it's a movie, I think it may die. Yeah. 
because things like the Wonder Twins have already gone down, a bunch of the CWs have gone down, The Flash is in its final season. The only CW show left is Superman and Lois because it has really good ratings. So this should be really interesting. I know that because of this whole merger, there's going to be a lot of, you know, a lot of chaos in terms of projects within Warner Brothers and Discovery, but maybe in a couple years we'll start seeing quality content. Yeah. All right. Now we can move on to what we really want to talk about. Uh, wait. Nope. No, come One on. One more. No, come on. Andor. Andor trailer. Okay. Fine. Let's talk about Andor. All right. So Second trailer. I actually like this one. I've made my opinions known in the past that I actually did not like the first trailer. I didn't think it was focused at all. It looked pretty, but nothing really grabbed me. This is different. This trailer very clearly shows that this is supposed to be the birth of the rebellion. And now some people will be like, "What? This is like the third birth of a rebellion story?" No. What they mean by this is this is how revolutions begin. Because this is a story about the politicians formulating their rebellious plans against the Empire. And people like Cassian are one of the first people to do so. Because remember in Rogue One, he mentioned he's done things that he isn't proud of. Which, as much as we like to lionize revolutionaries... When revolutions begin, they are very dirty, they are very messy, and a lot of times a lot of immoral and outright evil actions are done in the name of the revolution. I think this show will deal with that, with Cassian as our point of view character, to show that while rebelling against fascism is good, it is not clean. Yeah. Alright. Because we get to see characters such as Lunith who is a senator who I'm presuming is from the delegation of 2000, which if you remember in the prequels was the group of senators that Bail Organa, Mon Mothma, and Padme were a part of that were opposing Palpatine before, you know, unlimited power! And they all got fucked. Yeah. So we're going to get that. Um, and the, tra- the trailer this time puts... Uh, casting into much more focus because like we barely saw him i mean in his as an adult we saw him a few instances as a kid which i mean yeah he's been in this fight since he was six years old so you kind of have to imagine that yeah he probably probably get some instances of him as a child doing things for the rebellion as well yeah so and if you remember this is a series that is a two season affair season one child cassian season two adult cassian yeah so if i well, so because I, the, fir- the first trailer did show Phase 2 clone troopers instead of stormtroopers, I believe that we're going to see the beginnings of Cassian's revolutionary action be on the side of the Confederacy, the Separatists, and not the Republic. Because a thing that has always been stated, but not necessarily shown all the time, is that a lot of the roots that the Rebel Alliance has is actually with the Separatist Alliance, as well as the Republic. Because the Separatist Senate is far more anti-fascist and far more good than the Separatist military I mean, and the corporations that run it. I mean, to be fair, they're pretty much fighting the same entity, aren't they? No. 
It's very complicated. The Separatist Crisis, the Clone Wars, and the Galactic Civil War are all distinct events that have a similar through line, but the enemies and the combatants are very different. The Separatist Crisis was about corporations trying to levy more power within the democracy of the Republic by taking over worlds and then using them as bargaining chips. The Clone Wars is about systems seceding from the Republic because of the failure of the Republic to meet their needs. That, that, and that is the movement that has then been hijacked by the corporations from the Separatist crisis who want to leverage their power against the Republic for money. So it's about corporations taking over legitimately grievanced systems and turning it on its head and turning it into basically a corporatocracy. The Galactic Civil War is about the remnants of the Republic and the remnants of the Separatist Senate, not the Confederacy of Independent Systems when it comes to their military, but of their Senate and private security forces coming together to restore the Republic in its full democratic vision that it once was pre-separatist crisis. They don't want to restore it to Clone Wars era Republic. They want to restore it to the era before the prequels. And that's how it all is. And that's why I believe Andor will start with Cassian on the side of the separatist, but not the separatist like High Council but on the side of the senators who legitimately believe in democracy and feel that the Republic is turning into a fascist police state, which will then only be catalyzed when the Empire is a fascist fascist police state. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. Anything else in the trailer that seemed really interesting to me? Because we do get more of a look into the Empire as a whole, like with, like, with Cassian in their ranks... No force users, which I'm I'm sure a lot of fans are actually going to be really happy about because yeah. let's just face it over the past couple of years force like over the past five years even force users have kind of like dominated a lot of the storytelling in Star Wars and actually have made a lot of people mad about how much Star Wars is relying on them. Yeah, I mean the biggest defender of this is Grogu's complete domination of the latter half of the Book of Boba Fett. Yeah, and also like how they just misused all four seasons in um, in uh, Rise of Skywalker. Exactly. Thankfully, we're having projects such as the Bad Batch and the Bad Batch and Andor, which will decidedly focus on yeah. non-force users. Bad Batch season one focused on pretty much zero force users. And while we know at least one will be appearing within Bad Batch Season 2, it's still likely not to focus on them a lot. And Andor also seems to have no Force users. I will say one last thing I do want to point out is that I'm going to reflect my thoughts from the first trailer and say that the sets look really pretty this time. Yeah, they still look very pretty. It very much gives the vibe of colonialism and imperialism. Like... This planet is one that seems lush and fertile, and it looks like it's going to get grounded into the dust. Do, do they look better than the sets that we've seen in Obi-Wan? Because I'm going to be honest here, I kind of feel that way. I think they do. 
And yeah. mind you, Obi-Wan had pretty good sets considering all the other sets we've had was Tatooine. <laughs> yeah, Which I, I love say... Tatooine, but oh god, Tatooine. Yeah, because they look really good. I mean, there are some complaints around that the sets in Obi-Wan kind of look kind of cheap, but it is because of it. it's a it's a show. Yeah. But almost in Andor, you see a little bit of an improvement there. Yeah. Like, almost like they had a little bit more passion going into this project, which yeah. is weird to say. I think it. I think they. I think it did just because the Andor project always seemed to be more of a passion project. Yeah, and I think it was announced first before we even got the Obi Wan. Andor was actually one of the first of the new slates. It was Andor, the Acolyte, Mandalorian, and Ahsoka. Yeah, yeah. I think it was before the Book of Boba Fett and Kenobi or the Bad Batch were ever announced. Yeah. Even before the Clone Wars Season Seven was announced. Yeah, no, Andor was a project that's been a long time in the making. So yeah, this most likely is a passion project. Yeah, I think it's a passion project, and it's one that I'm really interested in because this is opinion that I've always held, is that Star Wars is at its best in a TV show. Basically, in a non-cinematic format, I think Star Wars is at its best in shows, video games, novels, and audiobooks. And those are its best mediums. And in terms of storytelling, Star Wars is always at its best when it's talking about the fight between fascists and anti-fascists. Yeah, and the shows are definitely the best medium to do that in. Especially considering the last... Or both the past and the future three to five years of this movie franchise don't look too hot, especially because, you know, if Taika Waititi is getting that movie and act asking actors, like, hey, you want to be in my movie without re realizing that, uh-oh, she already has a role in this franchise? Yeah, this is in reference to him asking Natalie Portman on the set of Thor Love and Thunder if, he, if she had ever been in a Star Wars movie. No, she didn't ask if she was in one she he asked if he if she wanted to be in one yeah it was like do you want to be in a star wars movie and it's kind of like bro she was in three which also is a very concerning <laughs> sign because you know the whole part of the sequel trilogy that people like like drag the most into the mud is this the she they had no plan they had no plan but also to an extent, the shitty Marvelized comedy that they tried to use oh, it was, was oh, just the worst, really bad. It's the worst part of the, of the Force Awakens and the Last Jedi, the and the Rise of Skywalker. Ugh, no, I was focused on everything else. Those are the worst aspect of those movies. Rise of Skywalker has much worse. The pacing was the <laughs> fair enough. Fair the enough. pacing was the wor worst part of that movie. Yeah, I hope Taika Waititi really dials it back on humor. Because, oh, I don't want to see that in Star Wars. Star Wars' humor is very unique to Star Wars. Yeah. Star Wars' humor is more about being... I, I kind of, it's... To be honest, Star Wars' humor is about being a charismatic douche to your to people. Or a droid. Or a droid! You <laughs> either have to be a droid or a charismatic I, douche, I and say, there's no two ways about it. That's how the comedy works. I will say, I do like the droid humor sometimes, except in The Last Jedi. I don't think that, that bit with BB-8 repairing the ship worked. Yeah. But droid humor is funny. Um, if you've watched Star Wars The Clone Wars, 
the droids are fucking hilarious and they really do ask you a lot of questions like one droid before he dies literally screams oh my god which raises a whole bunch of ethical questions right then and there in that instance <laughs> because you're like wait droids have a sense of god wait what <laughs> droid humor is amazing i love droid humor <laughs> again i do think droid humor works just not super marvelized like quips that like i really people complain about it in rise of skywalker but i do think it was the worst in the force awakens oh it was um in my opinion it's kind of an opinion that i have similar to alan moore in comics guardians of the galaxy was good but forever ruined the superhero genre in terms of in marvel's not so sorry guardians of the galaxy was good but forever ruined how disney treated live action movies yeah that's how I feel about Alan Moore when it comes to DC Comics. Watchmen was great, but forever ruined comic but forever ruined comic books. Yeah. That's my opinion of Guardians of the Galaxy, and I'm continued to be proven right with all of these subsequent movies. That's why, in my opinion, the Batman is such a breath of fresh air. Yeah. Because it's like, no. The the, the comedy that will come in the Batman will be from its own tone and like you know in universe things like because the penguin I mean, screaming i got you or who are you good cop and batshit cop that's funny i mean the penguin is a goofy character and so it works yeah but even then he doesn't act goofy like he doesn't he act just... like a quip machine he acts like uh, how the how we would see the penguin in a, in a realistic fashion. Yeah, he acts like you know he's someone that's been around the block. He's seen some shit, but he's confident and he knows what he can do. That and that's how his humor is reflected. Versus how in modern Disney live action movies and and uh, Marvel movies, it's kind of like, haha, serious scene needs to be ruined with joke because you know funny, funny, funny. Oh yeah, that. You know, I kind of see the humor in uh, Force Awakens and Thor Love and Thunder really dragging both of those movies down in the same way. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It was it was oh, the man. worst in Thor Love and Thunder. At least it wasn't in Doctor Strange, but there were still some. Like when he was like the Aluma Wadi, and I'm like, okay, come on. Come on. No. That should not be a fucking joke. You know what the fuck the Illuminati is. You're an adult male on the planet earth in the first world country you know what the fuck it is don't turn that into a joke oh god but it, again it just ruins because i like force awakens i think it's actually like a decent movie but man the jokes ruin the rewatchability of that movie see i'm of the different opinion i think the force awakens is a mediocre movie i yeah. really don't like it i think the last jedi was the best of the sequel trilogy and, I, I mean, um, honestly, the only reason I agree with you on that is because The Last Jedi is a beautiful-looking movie. Yeah, it... See, that's the thing. If all else fails, The Last Jedi at least has really good set design. And cinematography, oh my god. But The Force Awakens doesn't have that. Yeah. The best I could say is when the Starkiller base destroys the Hosnian system, but it's so fast that you don't really get to take in the scope of what is actually happening. Yeah. Anyway, we should definitely get back on track here. Yeah. Let's go ahead and wrap this segment up by saying I think Andor looks good. 
much better than the first trailer, I'm actually now a little bit excited. Yeah, I, I am continually but excited this, for this. But if this show is bad, Star Wars fatigue is going to hit a brand new low, and I don't think we can recover from it. I will say live action. Of the live actions? Of the yeah. live actions, because... I. I have said this for most of the time of our most of our time on the podcast, but animated Star Wars is good, and you need to watch it. Yeah, and I think that will honestly help you with Star Wars fatigue because when all else fails, you can go back to animated Star Wars because it's so rewatchable. Even Rebels, in my opinion, which yes, has it's a notoriously known for being a Disney kid show, is legitimately entertaining and at times very funny. Especially if you love droid humor. Because Chopper is a piece of shit. And it's amazing. And unlike the rest of the R2 units, you can actually translate what he says. And you can very quickly realize he's fucking hilarious. Yeah. Because, like, Book of Boba Fett was really bad. I wouldn't Uh, say it was really bad, but it was very disappointing. Yeah, uh, people are still mixed on Obi-Wan, which I'm inclined to believe that episode 6 was phenomenal. The rest of the show, please uh, please read the notes on how to make this better, please. In my opinion, episode 6 was by far the best episode, but the others were good. I think it was just a good show. It, it, was, a, it was a very slow rise to being... Because it, it took 6 episodes for me to realize, like, oh... Yeah, this episode's really good. Does that mean I really don't like the rest of this show? Uh, I don't know if I can rewatch this. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought Obi-Wan was good, but still not what we needed. I think Andor has the potential to really breathe that brush of fresh, breath of fresh air into live-action Star Wars, specifically because outside of Cassian Andor and Mon Mothma, we're dealing with entirely brand-new characters. Yeah, but if this show fails, it's going to damage the franchise for... A- couple of years i'm gonna be honest with you because i will a lot of of fans are just tired a lot of fans are tired but i have to keep reiterating this fact the animated side of star wars does in fact save the franchise yeah it is literally single-handedly responsible for the rehabilitation of the prequels it is probably what will save this era of star wars you have a lot of convincing to do because you need to watch Star Wars The Clone Wars, you need to watch Star Wars Rebels, and you need to watch Star Wars The Bad Batch. Because once you've watched it, you will understand what I'm saying when I say animated Star Wars saves the franchise. It really does. Alright, I think that pretty much wraps up everything on that topic. Now we can move on because we need yes. to talk about this. Because, this let's is... just face it, cinema has been dead for a couple of months now, not bringing out any bangers whatsoever we've been complaining and complaining and complaining on the marvel side but now we talk about legitimate films here let's go ahead and talk about nope nope was amazing yeah for once we finally can talk about a good movie this movie was so good everything about it was amazing it was appropriately scary the humor was tasteful appropriate And perfectly utilized. So, this is, of course, another movie directed by, uh... Peel. Right, right. Written, directed, and produced! By Peel, which, who has done Get Out and Us. At this point, he is three for three. Yeah. Both of his, both of his previous works have been really good. He's three 
I was going to say he's three for three on direction and five for six on producing because he will also produce Black Klansman, which was really good. Oh, yeah, I know. And Candyman 2021, which was really good. But he did do Keanu, and Keanu wasn't that good. Huh. It's, a, it's a cat movie. I don't think I've heard of that one. It's, a, it's the first one he ever produced. It's him. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a comedy about a cat. Ah. So, uh, probably not better than... Or probably not as bad as Cats... Oh, God, no. <laughs> Definitely not. Because Just when you compare it to the rest of the work that he does so, after Keanu, you can understand why I say he's five for six on producing and three for three on directing. So for Get Out, which was phenomenal, because um, pretty much everyone praises it as like, oh, the message of this movie is, yeah, uh, racism isn't gone, everybody. But specifically, it's talking about white liberal racism instead of the to be perfectly honest despite how prevalent and dangerous and you know prominent it is in america common variety right-wing hatred and bigotry is overdone in media because the, he subtly does it to where like it's not that they outright hate them but they're still using them in a way that's very like they commodify them. And it, they appropriate them because of the fact that they're on an upper echelon in society. Yeah, they commodify them, they exploit them. They never outright say, oh, I hate black people. Because white liberal racism isn't rooted in the fundamental because idea of take, hatred. Take the first instance we see of, um, of a white man possessing a black man. Like, they show off their entire body. They're like, look at me, I'm young and hip. Ugh. I'm sorry, that was so cringy to say, hear myself say. But like, but, but you get where I'm going. Yeah, here. he like it almost is like a renewed sense of confidence he has from being black. Like it, it's obvious that oh, this is a way of them to still take advantage of him, and it kind of sheds a light on like or like the one woman that had Andre as a basically basically a sex slave. Yeah, where like she doesn't hate black people but she sees black people as objects to pleasure her which yeah. is a very different kind of racism from your standard cross-burning kkk member and then you have us which is more of a critique on class yeah a lot of people keep saying that all of jordan peele's movies are race-based which is factually incorrect yeah because the family in us just happens to be black but it actually has no impact on the plot as a whole it's more of their relation to other families in the movie that is the hook for that movie's yeah. message. I was going to say, a lot of people say it's race-based, particularly because of an interview he gives, which people have just been misinterpreting. Someone said, will you ever cast white protagonists in your horror movies? And he says, no, I've already seen that movie. Which, whew, that's a, that's a really good one. <laughs> that's a which, good, which, I mean, obviously what he's doing is to, like, like offset the ratio of like uh white to black uh like leads yeah which it's really good because he does it again in um in this movie in nope and it works yeah which was which, and even their race doesn't even play a role in the movie to begin with because really this isn't like this isn't a race-based movie like in yeah. get out it's just a a, a uh, extraterrestrial horror movie yeah us was mainly about classism because if you remember 
Um, what's the name of the family? Oh man, it's been a while. I, it was because you have the lead family, and then you have the the white family, which but, they're contrasted against. Yeah, but the thing is, is that they're both solidly middle class to I would upper say, middle class. Because the lead family is like upper middle class, but the white the, family they're I, they're borderline upper. Class. They're borderline upper class, but they're still upper middle class families because they still like go vacation out by the lakeside in their cabin. Yeah, they have a fucking lakeside cabin and they have a boat. Yeah, it's a smaller boat, but most black families don't get to own that shit. Yeah, because like it's contrasted like, oh, look at their boat, look at their car. And like, like even with the, but you the, look at their stuff. Like, look at the lakeside cabins that they have and compare them. You have a nice, like, well lit two story like house, and then you have with um, the lead family more equivalent of like a one story cabin, which not a bad cabin, mind you. It still looks really pretty, but it's still not... far more expensive than a lot of shit people can afford. Exactly. So it was far more about classism. And it just happened to have black leads, but their race never factored into it at all. Yeah. They never comment about the fact that they're black people in this apocalypse. It's no, we are just, we just happen to be black. Now let's go ahead and get into Nope. So, so obviously, oh God, yes. now there are a lot of messages in this movie. I will say the biggest one, without a doubt, is obviously uh, entertainment's like need to commodify like tragedy i actually don't think that's the main one really i think in keeping with the theme of exploitation this is about the exploitation of animals i believe that is the main theme that which could, is why well, so a lot of people have been saying like this movie its message isn't that clear so it can lead to a lot of people interpreting it in different ways i see how where you're going with that i think it's about the exploitation of animals considering the two parallel plots that run the past plot line of Gordy the chimp and the current plot line of Jean Jacket the UAP. So let me jump on your wagon here because I can I can see where you're going with that. Considering that you have the main runner of the circus who is like, oh, I'm gonna try to tame this beast right in front of everybody's eyes, and ultimately he gets punished for it. Yeah, or mainly it's in the sense that if you think of it like this. So in the beginning of the movie, you see how the horse is treated. The horse is not respected. The horse is just there to make the commercial, excuse me, look cool. But once they realize, oh, the horse is testy, they just push a CGI horse in. Versus, so that's one aspect of how animals get exploited. They're not respected. Then you go to Gordy. Gordy is a chip. And if you don't know anything about chimps, chimps are fucking terrifying because, yes, they look small and hairy, but proportionally and pound for pound, they have way more muscle than we do, which is why they tear you to fucking shreds. Literally, they are like the only way that they're that we're better than them is our brain and potentially the better use of weapons. Let's be honest here. That's the outside of and also our ability to run that they we. Would we be faster than chimps? It's not about faster, it's about duration. You know what? Humans are fast in the sense that they can run for extended period of time. Even apex predators like cheetahs, while being faster than us, cannot run at that speed as long as us. They can go like zero to, I think zero to 60 in like a couple seconds, but 
they, it's they, only they, a couple seconds. Like, and even instances of where, like, they burn their, their energy so much that the more, like, hunts they fail, the more likely they'll die. So I, I think I get your point. Yeah, so that's what, that's our only advantages over chimps, is our brains and our ability to run for extended periods of time. Outside of that, in a pound-for-pound fist fight, the chip is beating you 100 out of 10 times. You will fucking die. So, and this movie shows the fact that, yeah, if a chip is pissed at you, you will fucking die. Because, you know what happened? They got fucking murdered! So I actually want to jump back on to where I, or how I interpreted it. Yeah. So my biggest like interpretation comes from the, this, uh, I'm just going to call him Circus Leader because I don't remember his name. Uh, Jupe. Uh, oh yeah, Jupe, yeah. Ricky Jupe Park. So... The biggest thing that caught my eye was the um, the disassociation between his actual past and how he remembers it as an adult. Yeah. Because he glorifies it, whereas when he was a kid, he was terrified. He thought he was going to die. But now he looks at it fondly, like... And he doesn't even... He takes a second to, like, reconsider, am I wording this right? But, like, no, he just still goes on with it because at the end of the day, it brings hype. It brings money. He's a showman. And ultimately... It is, like, it really isn't something that we should be, like, you know, celebrating, but he still does. And it's even evident when he brings, like, a crowd out to see this, um, this beast that he wants to tame. It's really, like, like, deep down, you know, after all of the clues given in the movie, where we really haven't seen much of the creature as a whole... He shouldn't be doing this. And ultimately, he pays not only with his own life, but the lives of his entire audience. I think that's the message I got from this, because, like, yeah. I feel like that is a much stronger message, because, like, well, actually, stronger, I'll take that back. I'll say it's a more evident message to me. Yeah. Because, like, I don't know, I just really connect, like, they tried really hard to show the disassociation between how he interprets interprets that past event that past tragedy now to where how he like glorifies it nowadays because he doesn't even skip over the fact that the tragedy happened because the leads ask or the lead girl asks him hey you, uh what happened in this like event because it's pretty well known actually no she doesn't know the event she sees the mad tv poster and her first assumption is almost that of what is this racist thing but he stops her to explain the history of it the only person that knew outside of jupe was oj because he's the one that mentions he's the one that's why chimps don't get used not not her she doesn't notice that yeah so it's still well known to oj because he's more in the industry compared to emerald yeah so like, it's still a well-known event, but he still glorifies it. That's why I consider it to be the main uh, message of the movie. That's what. That's really what I connected so, with. So, for me, I got a lot of intersecting and interlocking different themes. One of them, obviously, being the exploitation that Hollywood does to anyone. The ability to put you in there, suck you for all you got, and then spit you out is pretty evident, considering, look at... Both Jupiter's Claim and Haywood's Haywood's Hollywood Horses. Yes, Haywood yeah. Hollywood Horses. I know it's Triple H. Not 
not the not the wrestler. <laughs> but yes. And the reason why I want to focus on those is for one, Haywood Hollywood Horses, within the canon of the within the canon of the movie, is the first horse ranch to ever be used for film. And the Haywood family are the descendants of the first stuntman, actor, and movie star. All in one. So, but look at where they are now. They own a horse ranch and are barely getting by despite all they've contributed to Hollywood. Also look at Jupiter's claim. Kid Jupe, Ricky Park, was a famous child actor that had a spree of great movies that he was in, and then he was able to take that fame to being a child actor in Gordy's Place, even having a successful first season. But by the second season, where the incident with Gordy happens, he's then completely chewed up and spit out, and now look where the two are. They are on the outskirts of L.A., in the fucking desert where no one really knows where they are you should notice this by the fact that despite jupiter's claim being the bigger of the two not many people are even there remember it took days for the news to even figure out that 40 people disappeared from jupiter's claim yeah so that is something that speaks of how hollywood basically like uses you all and spits you up and like, chews you up and spits you out, because they're literally spat out into the desert. So, this movie actually does a pretty good job with relaying its messages, I would say. Yeah. The problem is, but, is that yeah, it has a lot of them. Yeah. The other thing that I wanted to talk about is trauma. Specifically with Jupe. So, the main thing that was really touched on in this movie is that when people go through traumatic events, they try to make sense of the nonsense in the sense that a lot of times when people are victims of senseless violence the trauma that comes with it they try to make something out of it they try to focus on something that makes it unique something that makes it like just abnormal to the point where like you're trying to make it seem like it's something more for for ricky it's the shoe is it possible for a shoe to stand upright exactly like that? Yes. But it's completely unlikely and even more unlikely to happen in what in the massacre that Gordy the Chimp did. But he chooses to focus on it because it's a bad miracle. A miracle within tragedy. And for him, that made it the event something more not an act of senseless violence but an act that led to a miracle which is then compounded by the fact that gordy he is a chimp he is a predator and lots of animals that are predators take eye contact to be a sign of aggression hell there are even some humans that take eye contact to be the sign of a sign of aggression but for Ricky in his child trauma in his traumatized child mind in that moment, he sees the shoe. And then Gordy comes. And instead of attacking him, Gordy takes his bloody fist and extends it 
for their iconic exploding fist bump. For Ricky, that is even more. That despite all that happened, this event shows that he has something special. Because why him? Why did he live? Why didn't he die like the rest of them? Well, why did the... Gordy spare... Hold on, wait. Why did Gordy spare him? But the reality of the situation is just that. It's still nonsense. He was making sense of nonsense. What actually happened is that the shoe, in a one in a million chance, happened to land like that. Gordy doesn't kill him. Not because of anything special about Ricky, but because he's staring at the shoe and not in Gordy's eyes, and there's a tablecloth blocking Gordy from making direct eye contact with Ricky. Yeah. That's why he survived. But in his trauma-addled mind, there's something special. So when he meets the alien jean jacket, he thinks the same thing. He fed it a horse, and he lived. And for six months, he lived. He thinks he has the same connection with Jean Jacket that he had with Gordy. Because Gordy didn't kill him. And Jean Jacket didn't kill him. But then it happens. Just like how the balloons, completely out of his control, popped and sent Gordy into a murderous frenzy. The Haywoods, using the fake horse to get eaten by Jean Jacket, upsets it. So much that it flies into a murderous rage and kills Ricky and the 40 people. Not because Ricky had any special connection, but he tried to tame something that was untamable, and he thought the things that were out of control were in control. He could not have put... He could not have stopped Gordy from killing those people so long as those balloons existed. Just as how he could not have stopped Jean Jacket from killing those people so long as the Haywoods fed it the fake horse. That's what yeah. I see. Yeah. The sense this, of the nonsense. This movie really does lead a lot into interpretation. <laughs> because obviously like our interpretations of the message are completely different. But still valid. Yeah. So I think... That's because what... you're absolutely right in how he is um, commodifying everything. Yeah, and it's completely different <laughs> to what actually happened, the way he presents it. Yeah. So, but that's a, a strong point of the movie, and also a bit of a weak point in a sense. Now follow me on this, because ultimately this movie is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. The setup is really good. The payoff for realizing, oh, it's the ship that's alive is really good, because obviously it sets it up like... Oh, it's a flying disc in the sun, sky, which means, oh, UFO. Immediately goes I, to your mind like that. Like, I whispered to my sister when I saw it. I think it was the third time we see it fly over the ridge. I whispered to my sister, I think it's alive. <laughs> and lo and behold, I was right. Yeah, but um, I would say that it struggles because its message <laughs> isn't clear, but it's still good that it's open up to interpretation. I think that's why I think get out is slightly stronger because it has one message it relays it really well but this movie it's a little bit more open yeah. which in a sense makes it a little less like 
audiences are going to leave the movie feeling different, like we did. We, yeah. We both saw the movie separately, and we ended up coming out of it with different interpretations of it, which is cool. Yeah. I like that. It's, and this is all only focusing on our, I guess, pseudo-antagonist in Jupe. He's not really an antagonist. He's not really an antagonist. He's more of the instigator of the main problem. Yeah. As it's him feeding Jean Jacket in the first place that causes it to stay within the Haywood area. But a funny thing about that is this. So, Jupe owns Jupiter's claim. It plays music. Jean Jacket was always staying at Jupiter's claim. But what changed that caused Jean Jacket to stay around the Haywood farm? When Emerald played music that night. Yeah. It changed. Because most apex predators are creatures of habit. Jean Jacket is also a creature of habit. It heard music, it looked for food. But it heard the music elsewhere. Hence, why it stayed at the Haywood farm. Thus, kicking off the plot. Because if, as we saw when OJ was first investigating the shit that Jean Jacket was doing, he noticed the music and the lights from Jupiter's claim, but didn't know what that meant. And to be honest, I don't know if he ever figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, this movie was really good. Um, I'm, I'm not going to lie, because I'm trying to think, what, like, aside from the message that it's trying to convey, what other strengths of the film did you see? I mean, the acting... The was... abduction scene! Holy fuck! The, re- the, the realization that the sound coming from Jean Jacket is the screams of the slowly digested victims was horrifying. Oh, and then the way that when it gets on top of the house and just everything spills out. The blood and the inanimate objects, but also the fact that you see the woman get slowly pushed up its digestive tract and then sees the horse and screams. And you hear everyone, 40 people, screaming as they're being slowly digested and then right as it sets above the Haywood house, crunch and silence. And then what makes it even more scarier? It's raining. But the Haywood house, it's raining blood. Oh yeah, no, the the imagery on the, like, the blood-filled window was really good in my opinion. Like, it, that was... That was fucking amazing. Like, that's the probably the most realistic like use of blood i've seen in a horror movie it was really the raining blood the way that angel and emerald are just sitting in the house scared shitless unflinching refusing to move also was perfect did you expect the store technician to be just a one-off character too i knew he had to have had a major role because i saw a poster and i saw the actor on the poster so i assumed he had to have a bigger role but were you surprised by that? How big of a role? Yes, he I was had? surprised at how much of a role. I knew he had to have a role because he was one of the four people that because got a. He was one of the four people that got a poster, but I didn't realize he would be that important. Because in the beginning it was like, oh, this is just a one-off character, and then like the in his first interaction with OJ and Emerald, like you see, like oh, he wants to be a part of it, but 
knowing like how movies are written he's not gonna stay in this story that long right and then he ends up being a mainstay in the movie which is like okay yeah i mean and he was really good i really liked angel's character yeah in fact did you know that in the original draft angel was going to die but the actor brandon peria did not just convince jordan peele but the paramount executives to keep him alive for a sequel Hmm. and they agreed Mind you, I don't think there will be a sequel. Yeah, but it is nice his character still got to live. Yeah. And the only reason he wanted the character to live was because he felt so in tune with Angel as a character, he couldn't just believe that he dies in an event like this. He had to he believed that he would be with Emerald and OJ at the end happy. Oh god, and the way he actually avoids death. Oh my god. Ugh. It was terrifying. Like, he got wrapped in barbed wire. No, he wrapped himself in the barbed wire. I know. It was... Oh, my God. <laughs> it was beyond painful. But he lived. Yeah. Um, I really love that. Okay. Were you not scared shitless when the three aliens that turned out to be Jupe's kids appeared in the barn? <laughs> that shit was terrifying! Oh, no. They filmed that really well. <laughs> Seeing, like... You see, like, the mass that you almost think is a horse by the light switch, but then it turns into two masses, and one walks slowly forward, and you're like, what the fuck? And then you see the third one hanging from the stable, and you're like, holy fuck, and then he just, like, punches it in the face, and it's a fucking kid. And you're like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. (laughs) No, this movie, it actually, like... It handles its horror aspects really well, because like I said it last week, I don't like horror, but I do like like psychological thrillers. And this this movie, it's it's somewhere in there. It's a horror movie, through and through, in my opinion. But it avoids the tropes really yeah. well. A lot of people say this is the Jaws of the Sky, and I am inclined to agree. You know what? Yeah, I can see it, yeah. Um, one thing that I also really loved was even just the subtle interactions of the characters throughout the story. Like... OJ brings up the buyback program, but Jupe immediately jumps on the ability to talk about the Gordy story, and which some could read it's about him wanting, like him, un, like unhealthily processing his trauma. But then the realization sets in: he can never promise the buyback program because the horses are already dead. Because for six months he fed the horses to Jean Jacket, and that's also why he wanted to buy the ranch. Because then he would have full access to a food supply for Jean Jacket. Wow. Yeah. That's why he jumps on it. It's a double whammy of, yes, Jupe cannot process his childhood trauma in a healthy way. Because he's a child actor that was chewed up and spit out by Hollywood. But also, he's guilty. He feels guilty. And in my opinion, that's why he invited them to the show. Because he remarks that this is the first show he's done and that he wanted it to be a small affair of family and friends. That's why he invites OJ and Emerald. Because he considers them family and friends, but I also think it's out of guilt. He's been killing their horses, but he thinks that if he can just show them what he's doing with the horses, that they'll understand and they'll join him. None of this is explicitly stated, 
but he's perfectly conveyed throughout the narrative. Yeah, you're right. You're completely 100% right. I love that. It was amazing. Also, we need to talk about the cinematographer Antlers. First of all, his name is fucking Antlers. But also, his character was really interesting. Because throughout the movie, every time you saw him, he was basically just... He was editing film of Apex Predators. And the shots were increasingly more violent. Increasingly more close. And when she said the impossible shot, that's when it clicked for him. That's when he realized, wait a minute. I could do this. All these things I'm editing, I can top it all. And then he gets out there. And then you realize subtly, he's dying. He's a dying man. Because you see him pop the pills. He's a dying man. And that's when you see the decision he makes to get the impossible shot, but to kill himself. Because in this moment, he realizes that the art that he wants to create is so beautiful, it is not one that humanity deserves to see. And so he kills himself for the ultimate art. He knows it's art. He knows it's revolutionary. But he knows, because he works in Hollywood, that it should never be seen. It was truly art for the sake of art. And that's why he died. Another narrative, completely woven throughout the narrative, but never vocally stated. Beautiful. This film was so good. Yeah. And can we talk about Jean Jacket the monster? Just so many different things. Like, there's so many debates about whether it's an alien or a prehistoric creature. So, in my opinion, I'm inclined <laughs> to believe that it's just a prehistoric creature because it's something that could easily hide away and there's no, like, indication like it's a foreign entity. Yeah. I, I am 50-50. Narratively speaking, I believe it makes more sense that it is... A prehistoric animal reason being is that its mannerisms are similar to that of earth-based apex predators and earth-based animals oj's experience working with horses is his key to survival as well as antlers previous knowledge of working with apex predators helps them develop the plan to stop jean jacket if it was an alien, I highly doubt its mannerisms would be one easily comparable to that of Earth-based animals, which is why I think it's not an alien. But, however, the title of the film is called Nope. And while, yes, the characters do say nope in regards to I'm noping the fuck out of here because that's a fucking monster and I don't want to deal with it, it's actually an anagram stating not of planet earth which could mean it's an alien because what would be an alien be if not not from planet earth not of planet earth yeah either it's a really good red herring or uh peel had way too much fun making this movie oh he definitely (laughs) had way too much fun making this movie in (laughs) fact when when jupe says in one hour your life will forever be changed one hour exactly is left in the film. 
Oh, that's funny. This movie was insane. Also, the design changes. Going, just the way it envelops so many different things. When we see Jean Jacket, when he arrives at Jupes, he looks like a cowboy hat. Like the one he wears. And it's kind of funny when you look at the poster for Steven Yoon. He wears the cowboy hat and it's almost consuming him. Almost like it's foreshadowing how Jean Jacket will come to consume him. But it looks like a hat. But also, when you see it in its true form, it looks, and follow me with on this, people, it looks like a vagina. And I am not joking. In all sincerity, I think Jean Jacket is meant to look like a vagina. If you see it in its true form, it very much looks like it has ovaries in the top when it's flailing, the middle and its outstretched parts almost look like fallopian tubes a bit. The inside, when you're going inside, when you see going up the crevice, it kind of looks like vaginal walls. And also the various what names and way it looks, like when it's shooting out its eye, it's in the form of a box, which is slang for vagina. And just when it rains blood, it's like a period. And remember, when it swallowed the horse, it had a trail of flags coming out. Like a tampon. Yeah, that's stuff that I didn't even think to consider. Probably, that stuff probably alludes to another message that we might have missed, maybe. maybe yeah, and maybe there's some commentary about femininity in there that we're not getting. But I definitely like, noticed a lot two, of there... vaginal imagery. There are too many hints that you've described just to be coincidence. There's got to be some hidden message in there. There has to be. And also, there is a poster for the movie that is a straight-up vagina. And you cannot convince me otherwise that it's not a vagina. You could probably you should say ovaries, because that's probably a little more no, like accurate. No, 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 no. Or more like... No, I, it's a vagina... But not in the sense of you're looking at a vagina, like how you would look like at one from, when from you're abs- having sex, but, but one that you would look at if like you saw an, a health textbook. Like an anat- like, like anatomic... An uh, anatomical diagram of a vagina. It. That's like, what the poster the imagery, looks like. The imagery that you're describing would probably be more like accepted if you said ovaries. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> yeah, but it shows more than the ovaries is the thing. That's yeah. why I say vagina, because vagina is the whole thing. It's the whole thing, yeah. But when I say like... We're speaking on the on the podcast, and you want people to understand what you're saying. I feel like saying ovaries might be a little more yeah. digestible. Yeah, it has ovaries, it has fallopian tubes, um, but it it looks like it just has a lot of vaginal imagery that I refuse to believe is coincidental. Yeah, it was very much intentional. Yeah, because also I, I someone to... even pointed out the fact that the way that in the end when it dies. The way it dies is when the balloon goes into it, it goes finger first. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, 
there's too much vaginal imagery that it's it can't be coincidental. It cannot be coincidental. Yeah. All right. Well, any other final thoughts? I mean, honestly, uh, I'm going to give this movie an 8.5. It was really I'm giving good. it a 9 out of 10. Yeah. I I only give it an 8.5 just because <laughs> over the past 6 months my uh my media like analysis abilities have been like going a lot negative, but this is still really high for me. I give it an 8.5 only because I give Get Out a 9. I give this a 9. Yeah, because I don't think it's like right there, but it's really damn close, and so I'm going to give it an 8.5 because I think it's still a phenomenal yeah. film. It's just there's so much to go into. Also, I wanted to talk about the fact that this movie focuses on black joy rather than black trauma. Because this has been a recent, not necessarily recent, but more prominent thing that's been happening within Hollywood, which is, yay, we're finally getting movies focused on black people, but almost always they're focused on black trauma. They focus on racism and they focus on its brutal nature, which is completely fair because that's what racism is. It is brutal and it is harmful to black people, but black people have more stories to tell than just racism. And this movie, Jordan Peele even says that this movie is about black joy, which you can see throughout the movie. The characters, while they definitely aren't happy all the time, they're being hunted by a fucking monster, they succeed, they triumph. They are black people that get to triumph. And it's not black people that get to triumph over racism. They just get to triumph in general, which is something that we don't get. A lot of people may have seen this trailer. I know I saw it and I know Sovereign saw it. There's a trailer for a movie called Till which that came over before the playing of this movie. Which, obviously, it's going to be a, uh, a telling of the Emmett Till tragedy. Which... The, the lynching of Emmett Till, yeah. which, on the surface, one may say, well, that's nice giving more awareness because but, it's it's yeah. something that's rooted in racist <laughs> history and yeah it's one of the most prominent and famous lynchings in american history however i firmly despise everything this movie stands for as i believe it is nothing more than shameless black trauma being used as oscar bait the lynching of emmett till in no way lends itself to being a story that can or should be used in a narrativized film it yeah. is the brutal cross-section of racism sexism abuse and many more yeah. it's a fact of life it is something that happened it is a brutal tragic event and in my opinion it should not be made into a movie because, in my opinion, the only thing that you get out of making this a movie is you take the story of Emmett Till and you turn it into a fantasy. You turn it into a myth. You mythologize the real-life lynching of a real-life child. And that is an example of black trauma and how it's commodified. And how this movie in Nope defies that. Yes, the Black family is on hard times. And yes, they do deal with loss. Their father, played by the great Keith David, dies within the first five minutes of the movie. 
But the movie is about black joy because the characters are hopeful that they can fix things. Even when things are bleak, OJ never gives up. He is determined to do what he needs to do. Emerald is as well. And they triumph for it. And I'm really happy that this movie focuses on black joy. And I know some people, when talking about black trauma, they point to Black Panther Wakanda Forever with the massive tributes to Chadwick Boseman and T'Challa. But I disagree in calling that black trauma exploitation simply because out of universe, Chadwick Boseman was a beloved actor within Marvel, within Disney, and within the acting world in general. And of course, he was gravely missed as this was supposed to be another movie in a long catalog of great performances by him that unfortunately never got told. But in-universe, T'Challa is not just the beloved king of Wakanda, he is a beloved hero within the superhero community, trusted by both Captain America and Iron Man before the latter's passing one of the most well-respected kings in his ability to control and wield power appropriately while gaining the respect of westerners and his native people alike his memorials within black panther wakanda forever in my opinion are akin to those that we saw for tony stark back in far from home which is why i say it's not black trauma but this movie in nope firmly denounces not denounces but formally does not ever let itself get bogged down with just being about black trauma. And I know a lot of people like to say that Jordan Peele's movies are all about race, but this isn't a movie about race. But when yeah. you bring up black joy, some people say, but it is about race. No, black joy isn't a racialized thing in the sense that in a, mo in a project that shows black joy, it means the project is about race. No, a movie that shows black joy is a movie that shows black people being able to be joyful, happy people in a narrative without having to drudge up their traumas about systemic races, systemic racism and the like. And I really appreciated that for this movie. Yeah. Also, two other things I want to point out. One... Did you catch the Akira reference? I did. The fucking was, Akira was reference on was so good, and I can't wait for it to be put into the collage of other Akira references that was throughout done, media. That was done on purpose. It was done on purpose, and it was amazing, but also fits with the character. Because if you remember the beginning of the movie, Emerald said she's good at motorcycles. And let's be honest here. Most, most motorcycle fans definitely know the Akira scene. It's fucking infamous. Yeah. <laughs> so it would make perfect sense for her, being a relatively young person who's into motorcycles, is definitely someone that would have tried to replicate the Akira scene. And she fucking did it, and I loved it. All right. <laughs> the other thing I want to mention is the fact that, you know how we talked about commodification and exploitation? Yeah. It is not a coincidence that our main character is named OJ. Now, obviously, he stands for Otis Jr., not Orenthal James, like the actual OJ. But it is funny, because if you notice, the white actress at the beginning of the movie stumbles and stutters when she asks, is your name OJ? Mm. Which, mind you, I do not mean, I do not believe Jordan Peele is saying this as an inherent defense of OJ, but more commenting on the fact that the OJ, OJ sports career, the subsequent chase, and then murder trial 
were all heavily sensationalized. OJ was considered a Hall of Fame level football player and obviously was sensationalized for that. The then murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and her friend was also very highly sensationalized. And then the trial and then subsequent media that has come out since then, such as the very trashy movie, The Murder of Nicole Brown Simpson, which is fucking awful and disrespectful in every way, talks about the commodification of OJ, which I thought was very interesting. Another thing I wanted to bring up was, so you remember when we see the flashback, when we see the point of view of watching Gordy kill? Yeah. So apparently, this was according to test screeners, and you can even see this in trailers, this is supposed to be the perspective of a mass shooter. He was going to the set of Gordy to kill everyone there. But as he enters the studio lot, he sees people running away, and then he enters the lot, and that's when you see the blood on the door, and you peek through, and you see Gordy, and then he shoots Gordy and saves Ricky. I don't know if I like that. Yeah, I'm glad it was cut. It's an interesting idea. It's, it's an interesting idea. I just don't I think don't it, think it would have worked with it the It really would. Which is why I'm glad because, it was cut. Because this movie is already handling a ton of messages as is, and including a mass shooter mess like plot point. I don't know if I would would have liked that. I'm gonna yeah, be honest. I'm glad I'm glad they took it out. <laughs> but it was definitely interesting <laughs> to hear that that would have been what saved his life. Which I will uh, say, would have added another dimension to Ricky's ability to process trauma in it, bad miracle sense, because think about it. If that was a continued plot point, his survival is a string of miracles through his eyes. The shoe lands. Gordy doesn't kill him. And a man that in any other circumstance would have murdered him saves his life. I can understand that perspective as to why it could have been in there. I guess. I'm just... Either way, I'm just glad that it didn't... Oh, yeah, I'm glad it's not in there. (laughs) But I can see the through line in terms of how it would figure in the just massive web that is the trauma of Ricky Juke Park. Honestly, if that scene was added in, it probably would have, like, distracted me so much of it being added in that I wouldn't have been able to come up with the message that I did. Yeah. But I'm glad that didn't add it, but it's still pretty interesting. It is. I I just don't like it. Yeah. Also, apparently... Also, the other thing was that we were also going to see, originally, he... We were also going to see scenes of him watching the show. That's why the trailers show different aspects of um, Gordy's Gordy's place. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be that it was going to be watched from the perspective of the prospective mass shooter that's why those scenes were in the trailer it's really interesting also this the designer for jean jacket has posited the theory that it's still alive do you think it's alive nah there might be more there There might be more that i could agree with there might be more but i believe jean jacket did die nah yeah no that thing that inflatable definitely killed it yeah also, are you team OJ lived or are you team OJ died? He lived. Yeah, I think he lived. I like he put in the work. He lived. Yeah, some people think he died just because of the fact that I mean, we have seen different 
scenes where a dead character is a is there and we see a sort of vision of them and also the context in which we see him is through a sandstorm surrounded by the sign that says out yonder and he's just faded enough that you could make the interpretation that he might have died mm. i don't the think he reason, died the only implication as to why i think he's alive is that you don't hear him yell like I would imagine the uh, process of getting dissected or digested, digested would be extremely painful, as implied by the rest of the movie. Yeah, there's no way someone's going in there like fully accepting their death and not yelling from the pain. Yeah, I'm sorry. especially because it's been shown throughout the movie that the people scream for hours. Yeah, it is not quick. Digestion is slow, and those people were screaming for hours meaning that realistically we would have been hearing him screaming for hours exactly and remember lucky is with him too so we would have also been hearing a horse scream as well exactly so that's the that's what leads me to think he's still alive yeah also what do you think of the idea that potentially oj is on the spectrum and that's also what helped him live because frequently there are aspects of him where he's very fidgety he keeps his head down. He doesn't make eye contact with a lot of people. The only people he makes eye contact with is Emerald and eventually Angel and Jupe. Because those are people he's comfortable around. And obviously his dad, Otis Sr. You know, Some people think that he may have been on the spectrum a bit. And that's also what saved his life. As he naturally only looks down because, you know, he's not really sure of himself. There are things that come with being on the spectrum potentially. and Because when you bring that up, it's not going to be like a hyper dramatic, dramatic like showing of it, but I I see what you're getting at, like especially because his fixation with animals. Yeah, he has a very almost savant-like ability to understand animals. He was the first one to notice and understand it's an animal. I don't know if I would use that as evidence for that theory, but everything else, yes. Yeah. It's just, like, the potentiality that maybe he was on the spectrum. Because I have seen comments from a lot of black people that are on the spectrum that said that his <clears throat> actions mirror their own. And yeah, his I, body language, his speech patterns, his... Those I yeah. would use it as evidence for that theory. But him knowing animals could be just a symptom of him growing up with animals. For yeah, it's entirely, it's entirely possible, but then again... Because if it is that way, it's a very, like, subtle showing of it, which... Is probably more welcome to a lot of people that uh, that uh, are on the spectrum as well, mm -hmm. because obviously when people are shown to be on the spectrum in media, it's over dramatized. Yeah. Also, the fact that Emerald is most likely gay, giving us a gay <laughs> protagonist in a horror movie where finally we don't kill the gays. Huh. I don't know if I thought about that. I. It's in my opinion, it's heavily implied she's gay. Huh. In what way? Or in what implications? Her mannerisms and certain language within AAVE that she uses are oh, okay. more so akin it's... to those used within black queer communities. Oh, okay. So it's nothing that I'm familiar with. It's a lot of her mannerisms and things that she says and things that give off the vibe that right, she's into women. And also there is that one scene where she's very distracted talking to that woman wherefore uh, Lucky, you know, freaks out at the guys holding stuff in his face. That's that's pulling at strings, but if you're uh, 
if you're using the uh, the other thing that you said, I I can buy it. Yeah, that she's most likely queer. Um, okay, this is a weird thing, but you know his co, you know Angel's coworker Nessie. Yeah. Do you think she was supposed to have a wider role? Her I name think... is in the opening credits. I feel like yeah, because I mean. She's not, like, she has, like, a one-off line, like, she's a character in the film and not just, like, a background character. But so then she I'm never, but she only shows up to say, so is Otis okay? And then you never that impl- see Because it implies that she knows what's going on. Yeah, you never see her again. It almost makes me wonder. Now hear me out on this. The subplot, there was a sort of romantic subplot that was going to happen between her and Emerald. Huh. That could be interesting, but... I... And I think they cut it out just because they believed that romance was just not something they could fit within the movie. You know what? Yeah. Because this movie was still... The script was really tight. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, guess, I'm guessing that it probably It was, was just... It was really weird. She got, like, a billing name. She's put after the four main characters. Actually, the five main characters being um, OJ, Emerald, Angel... Uh, Ricky and Antlers, her name comes up before Keith David's. So, I wonder if she had a subplot that was cut out of this movie. Probably. Yeah. But, anyway, I think that should just about wrap up all of our thoughts on this movie. There's just so much. This movie is amazing. Which, let's be honest here, cinema has been disappointing us for the past year. Really, there haven't really been big names to come out this year outside of Marvel. Because... The Batman. The best movie we've reviewed so far on this channel. Yeah, there are, like, very slim, like, we have a very small number of, like, movies that we like to, that we genuinely enjoyed in theaters. I would say the top three movies we've reviewed in this is Batman at one, Nope at two, and Dune at three. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would say if we had to rank a fourth, it would be, uh, uh, No Way Home. Yes. Yeah. I would say that would be a fourth. And a fifth? Let's not go there. Yeah. Let's not go there. Morbius. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Shut the fuck up! Um, but yeah, I would definitely say this is the second best movie we've reviewed on the channel. In my opinion, this is firmly a top two movie of my top movies of the year. Number one being The Batman, number two being this. And I have a very sneaking suspicion that number three is going to be Dragon Ball Super Superhero. which is coming out later on this month so look out for a review of that that's gonna be coming out despite all the spoilers being out on the internet and most dragon balls knowing it we're still gonna review it as if you don't know about it i'm still trying to convince myself that i haven't seen the leaks yet yeah you do that you're he definitely knows oh it's working wonderfully i don't know anything about the movie even though i've seen the leaks sure 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 he doesn't Anyways, um, yeah, I, and honestly, it was a breath of fresh air. Also, the cinematographer is Christopher Nolan's cinematographer. Really? Yes. So that's why it also looked beautiful, because it had a great direction and a great cinematographer. As you know, he did, um, he did um, uh, what is it, Tenet, which, great movie. Hmm. He also did, Inter- Nolan did Interstellar. Yeah. He did Interstellar. He did... Um, Inception, that's the one I'm thinking of. And I believe he also did some work on the Dark Knight movies. Which, I mean, really good cinematographer. I mean, Interstellar, definitely known for its cinematography. But yeah, 
Overall, I rank it a 9 out of 10. Sovereign ranks it 8.5. Yep. Overall, good movie. Definitely going to say Jordan Peele's batting 3 for 3 on direct on directing movies. And, yeah, uh, we have a nice trilogy of movies for Jordan Peele, each dealing with different aspects of exploitation, which, as leftists that love media, this has literally been a, trever- a treasure trove of leftist media analysis for us to go through. Yeah. It's just been so good. Yeah. Finally getting a form of media that truly, like, lets us just sink our teeth into it. Because the closest we get to being able to give leftist media analysis in films was the Batman and Dune and some aspects of Star Wars because Star Wars is inherently political and was made to be political. Yeah. Because, like, and Jordan Peele has shown, has thrown his hat into, like, that... The, a way to convey that message in film because remember us it was a, a it was a commentary on class being you know you've got the upstanding uh, middle class family and then you've got the people on un- the ground the tether who obviously represent the middle class's disdain for the working class and the lower class in fact as well the yep. ones even below the working class that's right so yeah, but overall, God, this movie's so good. The more I think about it, the more... I really want to rewatch this movie, but I just... I, I'm kind of in the mood to rewatch Us now, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, to be honest, we should... When this movie comes out on streaming, we should have we should just watch Get Out, Us, and Nope back to back to back. Oh, let's, let's invite some friends over. Let's make it a good time. That would be a very good time. I really like Jordan Peele's movies. I think they're really good. I think Nope was amazing. Daniel Kaluuya, Kiki Palmer, Steven Yeun, Brandon Peria, they did great. Also, by the way, when you saw Keith David, you knew he was dying, right? Oh. I, like, my sister and I saw him, we're like, oh, he's not making it past five minutes. <laughs> they were like, he was not in these trailers, he's not making it past five minutes. Especially because... Keith David, he's the legend. I mean, he played Childs in The Thing. He's Pastor Greenleaf in Greenleaf. He plays Mongol in Young Justice. He is very prolific in all that he does. So when you got a big name like him in the first five minutes of your movie and you didn't see him in any marketing, you know he's dying. (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, I think that wraps up all of our media uh, uh, segments for today. Yep. Nope was a very exhaustive review, but it was one we were really excited to talk about. It's definitely one of the best movies we've seen this year, and overall, it ranks really high on my top horror movies of all time. Yep. Obviously, my number one horror movie of all time will be The Lighthouse, because that was phenomenal. That's my only 10 out of 10 I've ever like thought about, really. Yeah, The Lighthouse is definitely my favorite horror movie of all time, but Nope is definitely getting in this list. Yeah, and uh, good job for making it past my, my strict eight, considering I'm very, very strict when it comes to giving out eights now. Yeah, I my, think a my, nine. My, uh, my ability to give out positive reviews has been really hampered by today's like pop like like nerd culture outings. So uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, uh, congratulations. Yeah, also, <laughs> let's be honest here, Jordan Peele is also a big nerd, so of course this is a huge, like, big nerd culture thing. Yeah. I mean, it had a fucking Akira reference in it. <laughs> what horror movie do you know gets an Akira reference? Yeah. It's a fucking, it's a nerd fest, and I love it. Yeah. Anyways, let's talk about politics now. So let's... So, which one do you want to talk about, Taiwan or Kansas? 
let's get the let's get the bad one out of the way first. Yeah, so we will be talking about Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, and the third in the line of succession to the presidency of the United States, making a diplomatic visit to Taiwan, which um, caused a bit of a stir, one would say. Yeah, she went against uh, people's recommendations saying, uh, don't do this, it's going to cause problems. And lo and behold, it caused problems. Yeah, so if you don't know, there is an ongoing based um okay so, so it's technically the the best way to describe it is this the situation between the people's republic of china and taiwan or sometimes known as the republic of china is an ongoing basically cold civil war because the whole thing that's going on there is that the people's republic of china are under the belief that taiwan is uh, is an extension of China, which, of course, a lot of countries back the one-state policy just to have good relations with China. But Pelosi going to Taiwan is a very, like, it upset China greatly because it implied because she met with leaders of the country, and, yeah, and so that implied that she was giving legitimacy to the. Um, to the statehood of Taiwan. Yeah, so I, w I do want to clarify this. For all intents and purposes, as as us two, as two individuals and representatives of this podcast, we are of the belief that Taiwan is its own sovereign nation. Yes. Independent of China. But let us now give a brief recap, though, of the very messy history that is China and Taiwan. Originally, when Mao Zedong led his revolution throughout China, um, the the dictatorial forces of Chiang Kai-shek obviously fought back against the revolutionaries and the two groups basically fought each other to a standstill until that was the Japanese invasion of China during World War II. Both sides realizing that Imperial Japan would wipe them both out, put their differences aside, and unified once more to fight the Japanese alongside the help of Western allies. Once they were able to defeat the Japanese and push them out of mainland China, of course, the two sides obviously have some irreconcilable differences, being that, you know, one wants to be, you know, kind of a dictatorship, and the other wants to be what it was supposed to be, a free democratic socialist state. So they obviously went back to fighting. But Mao Zedong had the will of the people on his side, and he won. He won the revolution fair and square, and the forces of Chiang Kai-shek fled to Taiwan. And since then, there has been a bit of a iffy situation. So back then is 70 years ago. So, so this has been a conflict that has been brewing for a very, very long time, and so, the tensions are still ripe. So what happened is basically Chiang Kai-shek and his followers, they went to Taiwan. Now at this point in history, it would be correct to say Taiwan is part of China. Because at this point, Chiang Kai-shek was saying that they, him and his followers on Taiwan, were the real China, the Republic of China, and that they are a government in exile from the usurpers of Mao Zedong. So at this point, 
Chiang Kai-shek and his followers believe Taiwan is China. Mao Zedong and his followers also believe Taiwan is China, but they believe that Chiang Kai-shek is trying to make an illegitimate claim to power in Taiwan. So if China was to, if China wanted to make a definitive claim that Taiwan is theirs, if they had invaded then and succeeded, I would say it is accurate to say Taiwan is China. However, that didn't happen. They kind of entered a soft Cold War within the massive Cold War that was happening globally, in which China believed that they were the People's Republic of China under Mao Zedong, believed they were the real China, and the Republic of China under Chiang Kai-shek believed that they were the real China. And so the rest of the world was kind of in a awkward position to say the least. Obviously, the Americas would have preferred Chiang Kai-shek because he's not a communist, but Mao Zedong, excuse me, Mao Zedong controls all of mainland China. And so for a while, the official position almost internationally was there is no China or there is no definitive China. There is just a nebulous area of China. That changed with Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon made a, at the time, historic visit to China in which he declared his support of the one China policy, which is that the mainland China under the People's Republic of China is the real China and that the Republic of China or Taiwan is a part of it. And at the time was very controversial, but not necessarily one that one could say a bit unprecedented, given the circumstances of other places in the world. However, since then, Taiwan, who now calls itself Taiwan, and the People's Republic of China now refer to Taiwan as Chinese Taipei, Taiwan no longer really views it. There are some aspects within Taiwan that try to say that they are the original Republic of China, but most of them believe that they are now Taiwan, a separate entity from the Republic of China that they once claimed to be, and now a free and independent nation. The People's Republic of China, however, disagree and still believe that this is Chinese Taipei. The rest of the world has since switched opinions. While formally all countries worth their salt do believe that Taiwan is Chinese Taipei, most countries act that Taiwan is its own separate independent nation. And so it is a bit of a sour spot because technically the revolution never ended. The Civil War never ended. It's technically in a Cold War. So when people come and say, well, I recognize this country, I recognize Taiwan as a country, China gets pretty mad to say the least. Yeah, for, it, for reference, the most uh, obvious example I can think of is John Cena yep. uh, acknowledging Taiwan as its own independent country. And then he had to go and show for China because they got big, like, big mad. And not just show for China, he had to apologize in Mandarin. Yeah. So, it's a really big thing. And, I mean, I can't say that I don't see 
where some people could come from because it is kind of messy. But at this point, over the past 70 years, Taiwan has made itself a distinct entity. It at this point has its own separate culture, its own separate governmental system, its own separate currency, and its own dialect. It is very different now from what it once was when it was claiming to be the Republic of China. Yeah, and so that pretty much catches us up to present day now. <laughs> exactly. So Pelosi visiting Taiwan caused a lot of stirs, up to the point where China literally threatened, hey, we're going to be conducting uh, <laughs> military exercises to the point where it'll be visible from your shorelines. Yes, but before that, there was a Chinese state media official now some people say he's a Chinese government official. Some people say he's a state media official. For all intents and purposes, we will say state media official. However, it should be noted that Chinese state media does have a very intertwined relationship with Chinese government. The CCP does have a lot of control when it comes to state media. But for the sake of clarity and accuracy, we will say this was a state media official. He threatened that China may be forced to shoot Speaker Pelosi out of the sky if she is to continue to approach Taiwan. Hmm. Which, if anyone knows anything, if that event happened, the Earth would be destroyed. We would die in a hail of nuclear hellfire and the planet would lose its sustainability of ever having life outside of fucking cockroaches. It would literally be the apocalypse if that was to happen. So that's a pretty fucking serious claim. Yeah. <laughs> we would be glassed. Both countries would be glassed alongside the rest of the fucking planet. Yeah, so... Uh... <clears throat> Yeah, you definitely don't want to have nuclear war between two mutually assured destruction-possessing uh, countries. Yeah, because at that point, I mean, Russia can just say fuck it, and Israel can say fuck it, and then, yeah, they'll, Israel will nuke Palestine, Russia will nuke Ukraine and the rest of Eastern Europe, and, you know, we'll all be worse for it. I mean, who knows? Maybe the French will get all frisky and bomb England, because, you know, that's still a rivalry. But, yeah, so... It would have been pretty fucking terrible. It literally would have been World War III and Armageddon. So pretty fucking serious. That state media official has since, on Weibo, which is the Chinese version of Twitter, tried to downplay his, his words, but we all know this was a threat of basically global annihilation yeah. in regards to uh, Taiwan, in regards to this visit. So it was pretty fucking serious. If, you know this person was of a higher status within the government and had the military credentials to do so, we could have been living in a world where, you know, at this current stage, we would be dead. But thankfully, cooler heads prevailed, and most people within the Chinese government, I believe, did not take his call to action seriously. I would like to have some faith that the CCP saw this and said, He's a bit crazy right now. We're not doing this. I hope that was what they thought. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so it's a big deal. In terms of our opinion, 
Taiwan is a foreign country. It is a country entirely separate from that of the People's Republic of China, and it should be acknowledged as such. And most people within Taiwan believe that they are an independent country, especially the younger generation. But it should be noted that they are not currently going to vie for official independence, as despite the fact that a lot of them do see themselves as a independent country, they know that declaring so openly in a governmental way could mean the island sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. So they're biding their time. And diplomatic missions like the one Pelosi does is part of that strategy of biding time. And now the CCP aren't stupid. They know that biding time is the best course of action for Taiwan. And they know diplomatic missions, especially from powerful countries like the U.S., acknowledging Taiwan in this way will lead to the eventual independence of Taiwan. So to say the least, it's a very messy and dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to talk about with this? Nope. You pretty much hit the nail on the head with that one. I would say... I mean... I really want to give Pelosi shit for what she did, but... I mean, ultimately she did it for the... Um, for the Taiwanese people anyway, so... She did it for the, she did it for the gram. She, I, she was girl bossing. She was slay queening. She was I doing st- it in the name of Allah. I still don't like what she did. Like, fundamentally, like, it could have led to really bad outcomes. Yes, but at the same time, it's not her fault. It's not her fault. Because... But, but she was... It's not her fault, but she was also advised not to do it. She was advised not to do it, but at the same time, I think it's important that, you know, we stop playing games. We do... Like, the United States sends a fuck ton of shit... To Taiwan, military yeah. and otherwise, that we do not send to mainland China. Yeah, uh, come so, on. Th- so like, I think the positive of positives of this situation, they somehow made it work. Yeah. Also, one other thing to bring up is Taiwan is by far the largest and most centralized global producer of computer chips. That isn't. That is very much something China wants. If China is able to get a complete monopoly on the creation of computer chips, they will run the global economy. Yeah, kind of like how uh, Russia tried to get into Ukraine for their oil. Yeah, and black soil. Yeah. But the thing with this is that if there is ever an invasion of Taiwan, we will face a global recession. The computer chip shortage will fuck over the entire planet. And mind you, an invasion of Taiwan is the island equivalent of invading Iran. The geography of the island lends itself to being a very strategically defensible position, like how the mountainous regions of Iran make it a very defensible position. So, in a way, like how if America tried to invade Iran, they would get fucked. China, if tried to invading Taiwan, would probably get fucked too. They would never be able to make landfall in yeah. any meaningful way. And if the war in Ukraine is anything to go by, with American weapons, they'll last a long time. Yeah. But, yeah, that's about it. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and get to the good news now. Yes! 
some good news, some positive news. It's not all doom and gloom here in the United States. Our first state referendum about whether abortion should be preserved or banned took place in Kansas. And mind you, Kansas is a very red state. They overwhelmingly voted for Trump. They do not like Democrats. They do not like Democratic policies. But in a shocking, near landslide victory, abortion rights have prevailed and the people of Kansas have voted to maintain the woman's right to an abortion within the state of Kansas. Now you may ask, how did this happen in such a red state? I mean, let's be fair here. Like, the Republican media has been like filled to the brim with anti-abortion sentiment. So how did this win? Oh, it's because people don't want want abortions to be illegal. That's it. Yeah, the reality of the situation is that for as much as we see government officials and court officials talk about how they hate abortion and how they want to ban abortions, they are not representative of the people. Uh, That's the funny thing about conservatism. Conservatives, while they definitely have a lot of support from their constituency, their opinions and their values kind of don't actually, you know, reflect that of their constituency. Abortion is one of them. Three-fourths of Americans believe that abortion should be legal. And I'm not good at math, but if I'm reading that correctly, that would mean a sizable portion of Republicans would have to believe that as well. Yeah. And so that is why they were able to do so, you know. Honestly, it's probably the Republican women swinging that vote. Um, yeah, it's probably Republican women and even Republican men. There, oh, there are definitely some there, yeah. I'm just saying, like, they probably, of the Republican base, they probably contributed to this victory, hands down. Yeah. Because let's face it, men don't know it like republican men don't know enough about the struggles of pregnancy to even like worry about it like it's probably more than just a fleeting thought for them yeah but also you have to remember democrats voted and independents voted and in fact this referendum had a very sizable voter turnout more so than you would expect considering how voting usually tends to happen within non-presidential elections this referendum actually had a sizable voter turnout which uh you know why because Republicans made young people upset. Yep. Because uh, turns out when you strip people's rights away, uh, people are going to come out in mass against you. Yeah. Which uh, I am very surprised a lot of young people didn't take the black pill. Yep. But I'm glad they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't take the black pill. They stayed they still hard. And, like, you know. That's, that's the big thing going into these midterms is that Let's face it, a lot of entitled uh, young uh, progressives are probably going to be taking the black pill right about now, and uh, we, we got to fight against that. <laughs> yeah, we really should, and thankfully it looks like we have this. And, you know, this does reinvigorate some hope and kind of reminds us that, you know, for as much as Republicans scream and holler about state right this, state right that, if we had a lot of things left up to state referendums, a lot of things that we would want would actually get passed. You're that's that's actually the that's actually very funny in the paradoxical nature of Republicans screaming about states' rights. They claim states' rights, but if they were truly about states' rights, they would run statewide refer they would run statewide 
statewide referendums, things like yeah. Medicare for All and the such, would probably win in a lot of red states if left up to referendums. And the big thing to consider is that before, like, 2018, a lot of midterms were, like, they were controlled by the older, red-leaning uh, voter base. Yeah. It was only in 2018 that we saw a massive blue wave for the midterms. Exactly. So, seeing that again in 2022 sparks a bit of hope. Because, yep. I mean, a lot there are a lot of uh, blue districts that are, or purple districts that are now starting to lean blue because of what's been going on and what Republicans have been trying to accomplish here. And so... Now, I don't like the trade-off of that. I don't like the fact that we've that the current trade is oh we're gonna win one midterm by eliminating women's rights for twenty years because let's face it we're not gonna get this fixed anytime soon. Yeah. So I don't like the trade-off. It's not worth it in my mind at all. But hey, if we got two years uh, of first uh, of stalling fascism, you know what? I'll work with what I've got. Yep. I, I, I really hate that it, it, like, like down, or not downgrades, but it denigrates, like, half of the uh, U.S. population in the process. It really sucks. But this is what they've been gutting for for the past 50 years. Eliminating this right in the Supreme Court has been their goal. And so we just have to, we just have to fight it. Yep. We, yeah. Mind I, you, this is still, this is still a hopium segment. Yeah, and I'm, honestly, like, if it happened in our state of Florida, we would defend abortion rights. Yeah. We have 15 million people in this state. Do you know how many people in this state probably have abortions? <laughs> yeah. A lot. Yeah. A lot of people in this state get abortions. Yeah. And also, especially our area. There's a meme about our area. Yeah. So. We, we, we won't specify which bubble we're in. But, but uh, we're in a bubble and there's a meme about it. But yeah. Hold, so hold on, I have a meme for that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is a very good hopium segment. And keeping in tiding with that, we have another hopium segment. Okay. Which is the US Senate finally did something. And they did something good. They voted and approved of Finland and Sweden's ap- application to join NATO. So go ahead and tell me how what was the vote count? So the vote. <laughs> oh God, I don't like the sound of that. The Senate. Okay, I'll just read the article. The U.S. Senate approved on Wednesday Finland and Sweden's as ascension to NATO, the most significant expansion of the 30-member alliance since the 1990s, as a response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The Senate voted 95 to one. To support ratification of accession documents, easily surpassing the two-thirds majority of 67 votes required to support ratification of the two countries' accession documents. Who was the one? I don't know. Find that out for me fast, because if we can find out who voted no... Of course. Oh, no. Josh Hawley. He's not even the craziest one in there. What the... What? 95 <laughs> to 1. For once, 
our Senate did something, and they did it with near unanimous support, and it was something good. Holy fuck, it's a Christmas in July and August. Miracle. Our government actually did something good for once. I'm confused. And it's not fucking over another country. That's even crazier. What is this? More importantly, why is Josh Hawley still continuing to make him out to be like a little bitch? Josh Hawley is a little bitch. I mean, did you see the way he ran? Oh no, the clip is hilarious. You need to see it. it you need to see it. The clip is hilarious. Literally, the entire uh, 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 Gen Six hearing burst in laughter seeing it. Yep. So this is actually really good. Uh, Democratic Senator Bob Mendes, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, said that the qualification of these two prosperous democratic nations are outstanding and will serve to strengthen the NATO alliance. Senator Majority Leader Chuck Schumer invited the ambassadors and other diplomats from Finland and Sweden to the Senate to watch the vote. And um, Josh Hawley was the lone Republican no vote, and Rand Paul voted present. Of course he did. So there was 95 yeses, one no, and four presents. That is an overwhelming majority of people supporting this. And it's good. Finland and Sweden have felt pretty antsy about Russia ever since they invaded Ukraine several months ago. And they felt that, you know, their times is numbered. But if they join NATO, they will be protected. Russia will never set foot in those countries in a military operation, lest they want Moscow to be reduced to glass. Yeah. (laughs) So, this is an absolute win. Yeah, be- I see this as an absolute win. Yeah, we get to uh, we get to have a stronger uh, uh, defense against Russia, and we also get to make fun of Josh Hawley. It's a it's a twofer. Yeah, this is the strength of anarcho nativism. God damn it! <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> but yes, this is actually really great news. I'm really happy to hear this, and. It came out literally, like, right before the podcast started, and it has been updated as we've been doing the podcast, <laughs> so I've been keeping track of it up until we got to our politics segment, and this is really good. Yeah. So, yeah, the Alliance is now 32 members. I mean, it's not fully, they're not fully in yet, but with United States support, they're most definitely getting in. Yeah. And it'll be very good. It'll bring a good amount of security to the people of Sweden and Finland who probably feared a bit. Because that after Ukraine, Finland would be the next country to cross. Finland or Estonia. Yeah. Though, isn't there something significant about Finland that Russia wanted to get, like, if they would want to go after a country past Ukraine, it would have been Finland? Uh, they have a beef. Yeah, they did have a beef, right? Yeah, they have had beef, and um, Sweden and Russia were empires that gone that went to war a lot in the 1600. Have you heard of the Great Northern War? No. That is a massive war fought by the Swedish Empire and the Russian Empire, and um, it was not poggers. Can you not? It was not. It was not good. Can you not? Is that how you want to end the podcast? No. Like that? Because there is one more good news thing. It is not politics related, but this has just come out. On the Today Show, Patton Oswald said that 
Eternals 2 will be directed by Chloe Zhao. There have been lots of talk that she may have been sacked when it comes to Eternals 2, and I would have been very disappointed if if she was, but Oswald Patton, Patton Oswalt said that Eternals 2 is coming, and Chloe Zhao will be the director, which I'm huh. very happy about because I really did like her. And unlike a lot of Marvel fans, I actually did really enjoy Eternals. I thought it was the second best Marvel movie of 2021. And Even though I really do like Shang-Chi, I did like Eternals a lot. Now, I'm inclined to disagree with you on that, but you can enjoy the movie. It's not terrible, so. Yes. Also, this is that, that was from TikTok. Also, incoming from TikTok, Oscar Isaac, main character of Moon Knight, and Mohamed Diab, main writer of, D- of Moon Knight, both teased the season two may be happening, which, of course, it was going to happen. We just got Jake Lockley. We better get it. <laughs> yeah. People were actually clamoring about not seeing season two because, you know, they they pretty much gave the timeline for their projects for the next three years and Moon Knight season two was not on there. Moon Knight season two probably could come out in the 2024. Not but 2025, though. It's got to come it's, out. It's the 20... Because you did notice there are like 11 unannounced projects within phase six. Yeah. Moon Knight season two easily could fit into that. Yeah. Oh, you're talking about phase six. No, I want to see it in phase five. It's not. We already have the full phase five... The whole full... The full Phase 5 schedule already! Just squeeze it in there. They they can figure it out. Did we not just go on a rant last week about how there's too much Marvel shit and you want to shove more Marvel shit into an already bloated Marvel shit schedule? But see, here's the thing. We already know that Moon Knight was good. Yeah. And I I watched the, the show again. I can handle bad CGI. It's probably going to happen 2024. I'm sorry. Okay. I mean, okay. it would only make sense the two-year gap. Loki came out in 2021. Season 2 comes out in 2023. Same with What If. Yeah. Makes sense for a two-year gap. And, um, yes. And, um, so that'll be everything. And, um, I just have one more announcement to make. And that is... Werewolf by Night will still come out October 31st, 2022. You heard it here. I still believe you will be proven wrong. I promise you, Werewolf by Night will come out. And that is keep, all. Keep digging that grave. I promise you... Keep it, digging I that grave. God, it will come out. I pro- Wait till D23. Give me until September 10th. I promise you, you will see it. I promise cap shut up shut the <laughs> fuck up it will happen and with that we are gonna end the podcast all right another episode another good episode today i've been your host sovereign and i am shiny and we're signing off for the night have a good night everyone